This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. I guess if I could give an enunciation of what I feel and the burden on the front end of this is just a desire to bring us into a fresh consecration. If I could give a verbal representation of it, or I'm sorry, a, a visual representation of it, it would be us on our knees, faces, just freshly relinquishing uh, to the living God. Not because we haven't done it in the past, but just the activity of soul which says, yes, Lord. Oftentimes I've described it as the predecided yes. In other words, you don't receive a commission from the living God and then evaluate it. You receive a commission from the living God and you've already said yes to it before it even arrives. Well, that makes you a little vulnerable, doesn't it? Because what's he going to ask you to do? We don't know. But he's, it's going to be good. It's going to be in alignment with his nature. It's going to actually bring his glory about. And so are you willing to agree to that even before he begins to work inside of you? And that's the disposition of the Christian is one of open hands. It's actually a great way of saying it. There's, there's two different mental pictures of coming to God. One is, you know, your fingers in your ears. And if you had multiple arms, they would also be folded with fingers and ears saying, God, whatever you want to do in my life, you can do. And the other one is the picture of the cross. And I can't do it and talk at the same time. But it is one of submission and surrender. It is one that says, well, I've already died. <laughs> and so as a result... Yes is my answer. This is the yes position. Saying, God, my life is no longer my own. It was bought with a price. And that is the essence of Christianity. And many of us have an American version of it, which includes, well, God, I will serve you and love you and give my life to you as long as. And then you just fill in the blank for a long time. As long as I get my way, as long as I can live where I want to live, as long as I have money in the bank, as long as I have friends and I have popularity, as long as... And I, I've noticed even in my own life that I can sound like a radical, like, oh, Eric will do anything. People go, oh, look in and go, wow, Eric's radical. Yeah, except for the fact that if you were to evaluate certain things, like, I have limits. So it's like, God, I'll go anywhere for you. Well, that is except the Middle East. And it's like, I've noticed things like that in my life that God will bring to the surface. Like, hey, what's this, Eric? I thought you said anything. Well, yeah, but God, I'm not good with Muslims. You know, that radical Islamic stuff? That's, there's other people that like doing that. I'm better with honorary Americans. And so I recognize that there are limitations that I even subconsciously will put in which prohibit my yes, Lord. It still has a condition to it. And what I would like God to do in all of us, corporately, individually, is remove those limitations. Is he deserving or not? Let's just get down to brass tacks. Is he deserving? Has he purchased us? Does he have the right to do with us whatever he sees fit? It, well, you'd feel really awkward in here if you're like, he doesn't. My life is my life, and I want to live it for myself and for my own glory and comfort. You'd feel really awkward right about now because the truth weighs upon us. We know the right answer to that, and I just want to bring us freshly into that meditation. He deserves our lives. So you'll notice over the last four sermons that I've given, uh, it seems like a divergence from spiritual gifts and basically going back to the most foundational truths that this church has been built upon. I'm just hearkening back to those main themes, those main points. Last week we talked about the sum, remember that? Uh, the, the chosen sum, the fast, which is a picture of the life of Christ. He closed his mouth and allowed the Father to speak through him. Sum meaning fast, to close one's mouth to not partake. There is a feast of the world sitting in front of us and we deliberately choose to close our mouth to it and open our mouth to Christ. And at first, it seems like we're giving up so much. I mean, the feast of earthly things. Oh, it looks so tasty. Do you recognize that when you partake of the earth's feast 
you, you are actually closing your mouth to God's feast. You must choose which one you are going to feast upon. Close your mouth to the world so you can open your mouth to what God has served up for you. And by the way, if you think the world stuff is tasty, it is nothing. It is garbage compared to what God, the feast he has laid out before us. It is only wise, it is only reasonable, it is only intelligent, spiritually speaking, to give up the things of the world and close your mouth to it so that you can partake of what God has for your life. So you're going to see that this is somewhat of an extension off of that, just more of a practical step forward. Uh, I Actually, my original title that I submitted to Sandy was Smashing Good News, and she said, I think that could be misinterpreted. <laughs> And so when she got, I was like, yeah, that's a bad, I don't want to smash good news. Because my, my sense of humor, I was thinking of that smashing good looks. Have you ever heard that? Uh, he has smashing good looks. I just think it's a funny statement, smashing. So I had smashing good news. This is like the smashing good news. And then I was like, okay, let's change that. So she proposed we turn that into uh, an adverb, smashingly good news, and that still works. But I wanted to emphasize the word smashing, because that has to do with, uh, with this message, a reminder of the proper response to the grandeur of Christ. The significance of a singular fleshly action in history. And so I said last week that I was going through this 18-hour uh, thing on uh, the World War I, and all of it starts with one guy and one pistol shot. And, I mean, you take that one pistol shot out of history, who knows? I mean, everything that flows out of World War II flows out of World War I. World War I flows out of that pistol shot by Gavrilo Princip. I mean, it, the whole thing, it's dominoes all over the place. Marxism, communism, Soviet Union failing and falling apart. It all comes out of that one shot. I mean, it's actually extraordinary to see the entire formation of the Middle East flows out of that one shot and all that stuff and the politics and the drama that we have all flow out of that one shot. It's interesting to just ponder because most of us are coming from the conclusion that God is, he is sovereign. He is worker of the uh, providential movements of nations. But there still is this shot. You have a a bullet in that gun of yours, and you could choose to live your life your way. And it's amazing the domino effects that happen. And so your, your life may not come up on a screen 100 years from now as Gavrilo Princip and say, yeah, that one idiot, look what he did, and look at the, the disaster that followed. I mean, tens of millions, if you could look at the world, world War I as hundreds of millions, potentially, if you were to total it up through all the disease that came about, all the, the uh, deaths subsequent, if you were to take the deaths of Hitler and of communism that flow out of this as well, I mean, you're talking multiple, multiple hundreds of, th- hundreds of millions of people killed because of pff, one assassination of this guy in a back alley of Franz Ferdinand, the Archduke of Austria-Hungary. It's like, who cares? Well, the dominoes are quite extreme. Now I want to flip that because I'm not trying to talk about World War I. It's just a fascinating thought. The significance of a singular spiritual action in history. Now, of course, we could focus on Jesus Christ and say, yep, there it is. It changes everything. I mean, we go from AD to, or sorry, BC to AD. Boom, right there. It changes everything. The amount of life that has flowed out of this one man's action is significant. However, most of us can't relate to that. Okay, We're not Jesus. Mary of Bethany is an incredible picture of a moment when something shifts. We see a pattern shift. You see, up to this point, still the understanding is that one gains his righteousness, his or her righteousness, through the keeping of law. And what we see is there's a shift of a gospel being presented, a good news that is ebbing forth into the situation, which is going to show, no, it's no longer based on your good work. It is based on his good work. And when you give up your good work and take hold of his good work, when you smash your previous dependence on your ability to do something, you take your faith that was once in something else, which could have been all sorts of different things that take that placeholder, and you dump that out. I'm going to use the word smash it. So that you can take hold of Jesus Christ, everything shifts Jesus takes what this one woman does, named Mary of Bethany, and says, here it is, right there. When this good news comes forth into this generation, you need to remember this 
right here. And so talk about a moment that is highlighted and brought to the surface. Brought to the surface more than almost any other moment in all of history. Most of us don't look at it that way, but how many times does Jesus say, right there, highlighter pen, this is it. Most of us look at it and we're like, what? I'm supposed to like say this? Is that what I'm supposed to say? Every time I share the gospel, I'm supposed to say, oh, and by the way, 2,000 years ago, there was a lady named Mary of Bethany that poured out some perfume. Is that what we're supposed to say? No, 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 no. You see, what she is doing is of great significance in the change of covenants. And what she represents in her action is actually how you access the kingdom of heaven. So let's go into it. The smashing of the jar by Mary of Bethany. The domino effects, the change of history, the model that is set forth is amazing. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him thirty pieces of silver. You see what's happening here? This very moment sets forth something. The very one who is, there's, there's one who's going to betray Christ for thirty pieces of silver. It's talked about in the Old Testament. When does that happen? When this woman does what she does. It starts the chain reaction. When this woman does it, remember who complained? It's like, hey, that was a waste. Uh, Who was that? Judas. What does he do next? He goes and sells out Jesus. I mean, this literally is the chain reaction of everything we know as the gospel. The gospel, which literally saves, brings about redemption, transforms human lives, brings about life. What this woman did starts something. It's like, it's not a bullet. It's something else. It's the opposite of whatever uh, Gabriel Principe did. Whatever he did will take the opposite, and this is what this woman is doing. She is ushering in something quite profound. What did this woman do? She gave a startlingly clear picture of the proper human response to the grandeur of Christ. So when you see Christ for who he really is, there's a proper response to it. And it's not a yawn, by the way. It's a life change. So the basis of this and what this woman is doing is what we could call faith. Now, most of you know that faith is important, but we oftentimes struggle to really wrap our hands around it. Like, what exactly is faith? What is it? We know it's, it's valuable. We know that without it, you can't please God. So what is it and how does it work? And so one of my great passions, and so if you've been around this church, you've been around the training, is I'm going to go into great detail mechanically to understand how faith works. Because if it's not mechanical, if we can't actually do it, and it's just sort of a theory out there, well, then we can't participate in whatever wonder this is. So faith, what is it? How does it work? Without faith, it is impossible to please him. So whatever this thing known as faith is, is critical to this whole fellowship that we have with God. Without this faith, we cannot function in our Christianity. Christianity is not even Christianity without it. For those that have grown up and are sort of my age, maybe you know, 10 to 20 years older, we're very sensitive to the word faith, too. Because of certain people that masqueraded throughout Christianity, still are out there, by the way, that have taken the idea of faith and warped it. They took it as sort of a a divine jukebox or a divine candy machine. And whatever I want out of this jukebox or this candy machine, I can get it with faith. It actually has nothing to do with what faith is. It's a complete perversion of the notion of faith. Faith isn't me deciding what I want to be true. If I just think hard enough about a red Ferrari, it will appear. Okay, that isn't actually what faith is. I don't make things or create things with my faith. I respond to him. He is the solid in this situation. He is the object that doesn't change, and I fix myself to what he says, who he is, and that is faith. And so I'm going to walk through it mechanically so that you can catch a picture. This is going to be a very slimmed-down version of what I would go through in a training But it'll at least start us off and rev up the engine afresh. First, what is it? So I'm going to go through a list of four. If you have your notes, you would see that I have four things listed. Uh, Don't peek. Uh, The first one, they're so obscure that even if you peek down, they might not make any sense. 
A.W. Tozer, I always remember the statement, it's the gaze of the soul upon God. Okay. I don't know that that helps you practically do it. It's like, okay, I'm gazing. However, the concept is you could gaze on the things of this earth or you could turn that gaze onto God and say, God, I trust you. So in every situation, no matter how bad it gets, your bank account goes empty, what are you gazing upon? Most of us gaze upon an empty bank account or do we gaze upon God? What if you, know, you have an impossibility around you? It's just a situation you physically, practically can't get out of. What are you focused on? Most of us focus and turn our gaze upon the circumstances. We stare at the Goliath instead of the huge God standing above Goliath with his fist out saying, just tell me when. He's ready to crush our impossible barriers. He is the one who defeats our giants. What do you stare at? So A.W. Tozer simplified faith to say, hey, it's simply where you turn your gaze because what you look upon with admiration, what you look upon and are impressed by, what you fear, you either fear the things of this earth or you fear your God. Which way are you turning? That defines faith because you, know, you can have faith in yourself. You can have faith in that giant to defeat you. And so I remember one statement. I don't remember who said it, but it's a great statement. So many Christians today have more faith in the power of sin to control them or to continue to control them than they do in the God of the universe to deliver them from it. Think about that. Where's your faith? Where's your confidence? That's strong. That sin is so powerful. It's always held me. Okay, you have faith in the power of sin. What God asks you to do is break that open. Let go of that. Turn and take that same faith and place it squarely upon him. Turn your gaze your admiration, your worship, your confidence, your trust. Dr. Erwin Moon. So remember those Moody Science videos? If you're a homeschooler, you may have been subjected to those. They're actually really good. I, I like them. But they're sort of that old crackly screen uh, type of thing. They're old school uh, stuff. And you can like get them on YouTube and watch them. Uh, and uh, they're, re- they're really uh, good. But he gives that description of faith, which is sort of the classic understanding of the chair. Okay, so, uh, so you could build a chair and you could ask someone, do you think that chair could hold you up? Uh, yes. Uh, <clears throat> Conceptually, I believe that chair could hold me up. Then sit in it. You see, the sitting is the action of faith. Faith is not just a neutral. You know, if you really believe something, prove it. There's an action to it. And that's what I'm going to talk about today, that faith is not just a mental ascent to say, oh, and I believe God can save. Well, prove it. I believe that if I jump off this cliff, he'll catch me. Oh, do you? Prove it. And so that's the chair illustration. Okay, you believe that this chair is structurally sound to hold you up. Prove it. What would you do? You would sit in it. You would put your weight upon it. You would trust it to hold you up. Bruce Olson, the hammock strings. So Bruchko, if any of you have read the the famous missionary story of Bruchko, Bruchko, that was his nickname amongst the different pronunciations that I've heard, Modalone, Modalone, uh, Indians in Colombia, is that right? Uh, it's been a while since I heard the story. But uh, he was trying to figure out how to communicate the idea of faith to these people that had never heard it. They had no word in their language for faith. So what do you do if, if the people you're trying to reach with the gospel have no word to even understand the most basic mechanics of coming to God? So he thought about it, and this is what came out. You see, they had it. This is sort of a strange society, but they had like this uh, common house, and it had rafters in it, and they all would tie their hammocks to the rafters and sleep. So I don't know what it would look like if you walked in there at night, just a whole bunch of cocoons uh, up above your head, but it would be sort of eerie. That's how they lived, and so this is his description. He said, it's like taking your, the hammock string of your life and tying it into Christ and then laying down upon it and trusting that he will hold you up. Huh. They understood that because it related to them metaphorically in, a, in a, an area of their life that they could say, I get that. Many of us hear about faith, but it's never brought to the practical side of our life. Like, hey, tie your hammock strings in. Well, if someone said that to you, you don't sleep in a hammock. You don't tie your sleeping bed to the rafters of something. We don't sleep in a common house. That doesn't truly make sense to us. So faith needs to become grippable in our own souls. Pulling a Mary of Bethany. So in a simple sense, before I go into it, I'm going to say one of the best descriptions of faith that I see in the entire Bible. 
if not the best description of faith in the entire Bible, which is why Jesus takes his highlighter pen and goes, phew, you see that? There it is, is Mary of Bethany. What she does in this situation is an incredible picture of the movement of soul, the mechanics of soul towards Christ. How does it work? So faith is made up of two soul operations. There's two things that are happening inside of someone when they are believing in Jesus Christ. That when these two soul operations are combined, they create a unique and ready atmosphere for spiritual revolution in the inner man. So when we function and do whatever this thing called faith is, it changes something inside of us and it makes us ready to apprehend and receive. It's like a revolution. It's a change of ownership, a change of authority in our soul. You go from being under one dominion, the power of darkness, and you switch over unto a new kingdom through this operation. So as a result, it's critical that we understand this movement of soul. If we just sit in our seat and stare at the truth and say, yeah, I agree that that's true, but never activate with these two soul operations, we actually do not exit this kingdom. And I've given this illustration many times before that you could know intellectually that eating McDonald's food is killing you, but you still do it. And you could know intellectually that eating health food, a whole bunch of vegetables, raw vegetables, of course, is good for you. But you could continue, and you could even acknowledge it. If you had a true-false test and someone says, is McDonald's food bad for you, true or false? True. Would eating raw vegetables be healthy for you, true or false? True. Does that mean you're eating uh, raw vegetables? No. You see, what needs to take place is you need to forsake one thing and take hold of another. Now, praise God that our message is not on McDonald's and vegetables because that I mean even to me this sounds fairly depressing if that's the uh, it's like you're giving up well no, I'm not a fan of McDonald's okay even though if you gave me a choice of a Big Mac and a pile of raw vegetables I have to admit that that Big Mac still looks pretty good but I have to stick it over here in this illustration so praise God that the kingdom of heaven is better than just raw vegetables <clears throat> so here are the two Soul operations. These are the actions. These are the movements that must take place. It's not just the answering of a true-false test. It is an actual engagement in a movement. It's an action of soul. It involves movement. It is not passive. The first is the term repent. The second is the term believe. Uh, If you've been around Christianity, you've heard these words, but they're both actions. They're both verbs. In other words, you don't repent and do nothing any more than you run while you're sitting. In other words, if it says run, that is the opposite of sitting. So repent, it's an action of denial, okay? There's an action to repentance. You are denying something. Here's another definition. A letting go of something, a giving over, a turning away. So most of us are going to understand the turning part. That's going to be what has been emphasized for many times because that's closest to the idea of repentance uh, etymologically, okay? That you are literally changing from one to another. You are turning from something. But what it is is the letting go of a previous. You've had something. You've had a grip on something. And God says, you need to let that go because I want to use that grip of yours to take hold of something that gives you life. As long as you hold that, you cannot grip what I want to give you. That grip is being used. So God says, I need you to let go of what's in that grip. It's not because he's just interested in having you give up good things. You ever had that thought? God just wants you to give up everything that's fun and then you have to accept everything that's miserable. A lot of people have this notion that that's what Christianity is. Actually, what God is saying is, I have something so good for you, but you cannot grip it if you're utilizing your grip on darkness. If you're holding on to that which kills you, repent of that. Let it go. Turn away from it so that you can now, listen to this, believe. It's an action of acceptance. So you are not accepting one thing, you are denying one thing so that you can accept another. You can't have both. In other words, without the repentance, you can't have the acceptance. It is a grabbing a hold. Well, you can't grab a hold if you're still holding on. So we have this idea of grab a hold while you hang on to your selfish life, grab a hold to a selfless life. 
Well, how do you do that? You can't do that. That's the whole point. When we remove repentance from the the giving of the gospel, we think we're being nice and culturally sensitive, but all we're doing is setting people up for failure. It's like, no, no, no. Keep eating all your McDonald's, but then just esteem vegetables. Just, Just pray this prayer. Vegetables are good for me. Amen. There you go. You're fine. That, that doesn't change anything. You have to give up your McDonald's to start eating the good stuff. So repent, believe. The illustrations of the two faith actions working together. So the grip of the monkey. If any of you have ever uh, read the book, uh, Brother Andrews, what's that? God Smuggler. Great. It's probably possibly one of my all-time favorite biographies. But there's this illustration that comes out in the story of a monkey that, and if, you know, to catch a monkey, how do you catch a monkey? That's not very easy. It's like, I see a monkey in the tree. Okay, good luck catching it. So how do they catch monkeys? Well, one of the tactics was to find some kind of a jar, bottle, that had a, a, a small, uh, what do you call the top of a, a bottle? Is it, what, what is it? Open. <laughs> Opening. I can't, everyone's talking at once. I didn't get any of it. So Opening, we'll just use that for now. A small opening, and so you stick something shiny in the bottom of the the bottle, the can, whatever it is, and the monkey, because he's curious, curious George, will stick his uh, hand, paw, whatever. I needed to study monkeys before I did this. (laughs) And he will grip it. And guess what? That monkey is so dogged and so determined to keep that treasure that he would rather be caught by someone with his hand in the jar than to let it go. What's his secret? Let it go, buddy. You see, you're gonna be caught. (laughs) You're gonna become a slave unless you let go of that. He will not let go. And so the reason I'm saying the two operations working together is that monkey must repent and believe so that his life will be spared. That's just an interesting illustration of it. The cup full of dirty water. This is the one that I'll use in our training a lot. Imagine that you're like a glass. Okay? And you're full of polluted water. And God says, you know what? I have a gift for you. I desire to fill you with living water. I mean, it is such good water. It comes straight from the heavenly fountain itself. And we're like, all right, God, pour it in. It's like, oh, before you can receive it, you need to dump out the old stuff. We're like, why is that? I like my polluted water. Because you can't blend these two. You need to give up one to accept the other. And so if you're that cup, it doesn't make any sense to keep the polluted stuff in there, does it? I mean, it's irrational. And yet how many of us want our Christianity that way? I want my polluted water and I want God to just dump in his living water and sort of dilute the bad stuff and I'll be, you know, relative, I'll get like a C in Christianity. In other words, we'll just sort of be halfway there. God says, I can't give you my living water unless you dump out. So some of us are wondering, why God don't I have this living water? Well, you're still holding on like a monkey to your little treasure. It only makes sense, oh little monkey, to let go of that which you're holding, that little bright, shiny thing that's worthless. Now after that, John was put in prison, speaking of John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And he gives two actions. He says this is what you do in response to the gospel of the kingdom. Repent and believe. He gives two action points to the soul. The kingdom of heaven is here. The good stuff is here. The life is to be had. Oh, little monkey, let go. Hey, cup full of polluted water, dump out so that you can receive it. Faith needs something in order to be faith. I know that might sound like a strange thing, but faith is invested in something. It's not just some random thing like, oh, you need to have faith. The question back would be faith in what? Faith has to have an object. If it does not have an object in which it puts its confidence, for instance, money is a great thing to have faith in. Economic systems, governments, people do it all the time. How about medicine cabinets? As long as I, as long as I have that medicine, I will be fine. How about caffeine? As long as I have my caffeine, then I'll behave like a Christian. We have different things that we place our confidence in. Sorry that I'm striking a little close to home for some of you. It needs an object of faith. It needs something to look upon and consider impressive. It needs something to trust. Something to put its confidence in. It needs an object of salvation. If I just had this, then, what do you need? What are you looking for? 
What Jesus says very clearly, you need me. If you have me, I will bring salvation, not just in the eternal sense of your soul, but in every subsequent area, every small lowercase area of your life, will be satisfied. You seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. All these other things will be taken care of. Let go. Let go of the controls. Let go of the fact that, well, if I just have a house, if I just have these clothes, if I just have this much money, if I just have this job, if I just have this reputation, if I just, you fill in the blank. Then, what God says is, let go, grab a hold of me. And when you do that, all these things will be satisfied. I will take care of you. That is the entrance into the kingdom of heaven. That's how it works. Repent. Believe. Believe what? He is sufficient. He is your all in all. He is your savior. What he did on that cross is everything you need for life and for godliness. He is what you need. What about for my finances? He is what you need. What about for my career? He is what you need. What about for my marriage? He is what you need. What about for raising kids? He is what you need. What about for my health? He is what you need. So when you turn to any other counterfeit, it's called an idol, anything else outside of Christ, what you have done is you've replaced the perfect with an imitation. So what is Christ saying? Could you let go of the imitation? Could you let go of that earthly solution? I am the only solution for your soul, for your circumstances, for your eternity. The girl and her treasure, the beautiful picture of faith in action. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he, Jesus, sat at the table, a woman having an alabaster flask, which is not a typical term for us, flask. It's a jar. It's a container. It's a bottle of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask, the jar, the container, and poured it on his head. So just to give you sort of that mental picture, this woman has something. It's described as very costly. That term in the Greek is very important because when it translates, we actually lose something. We lose the fact that in the very wiring of the wording in the Greek is a concept and an idea that to us translates as, oh, that's very expensive. That's worth a year's wages. I mean, that's a lot of money there that she's dumping out, which is important to the story. She's giving up something very, very significant. And so then we're doing a value uh, statement on it. It's like, well, was it really worth it? I mean, you think she could have just dumped a little out instead of poured out the whole thing. Of course, now you're starting to reason like Judas. And the bad guy in this story is not the one we want to be reasoning like, yet we have a propensity to do it. It's like, wow, that does seem like a little extravagant. And yet what Jesus is saying in this story is, this is it, highlighter pen, dominoes start falling, this moment is going to shift the course of history. Uh, So, I mean, Jesus is going out of his way to say, yeah, I, I know that your natural man is maybe indignant and befuddled by this, and even a bit angry that that was such a waste. It's not a waste, guys. Nor is it a waste for you to take your jar, flask, bottle of whatever it is that you're holding on to, whatever you put your faith in, when you see who Jesus really is, what's the rightful response? What's the appropriate, reasonable, intellectual response for any thinking person? The things of this earth or the things that are eternal? What should we do? If you ever hear the story of the rich man and Lazarus, I mean, it's just a no-brainer. The rich man had everything in this life. He lived comfortably. Outside his gate was a guy who was covered with sores and miserable, and his name was Lazarus. And they both die, and they both go to two different places. And the rich man, after living it full and, you know, in the worldly sense, is wishing for just one drop of water on his tongue, and yet he can't have it. And Lazarus is in the, what's called the bosom of Abraham. Those that believed, as Abraham believed, they had faith satisfied. Jesus comes and rescues that lot and takes them where he will be. In other words, you're saved in the Old Testament the same way you are in the New. You place your faith, your confidence in the Messiah, in the one we know as Jesus Christ. So this woman, in seeing the beauty, the grandeur of Jesus Christ, does something very specific. She takes her jar of spikenard and smashes it. 
Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with odor of the ointment. The indignation of the onlookers. But that spikenard is some valuable stuff. In fact, if you know more about spikenard, it's even more extreme. When you recognize, because some of us, especially as guys, if, you know, if we dumped out some perfume, not the end of the world. Okay, now if someone told us that was, took a year's worth of wages to buy, suddenly we're a little more protective of this. But it's not because we just want some perfume around. It's because that's valuable. However, when you understand the depth of what spikenard was, you begin to realize this is more than just perfume. Yes, it smells good. But that's one byproduct of something that has far greater value. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste of the ointment made? So in this process, what I'm going to basically lay out for you is Jesus deserves everything. Everything. That we need to let go of anything that plays a counterfeit replacement role in our soul. And at first, it's going to sound extreme. It just does. And there can be indignation within us, like, hey, whoa, well, that's, that's an extreme response. I mean, you can live out your Christianity, you don't need to be, you know, like that. And I'm going to say, no, you do need to be like that. That's just basic Christianity. It's not some newfangled version. It's the old school version that works. So if you want Christianity on God's terms, you let go. You give up so that you can take hold and live fully. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? Justification, rationalization. Why do I hesitate to go to the Middle East to reach ISIS? Well, I mean, why would the waste of this life be made? I mean, this life could be used for other things. I mean, just, I mean, I mean you are even going to argue with me. If I said I feel called to go over and die uh, because I want to try and uh, entreat ISIS with the idea that maybe they're making some bad decisions, you're like, Eric, whoa, whoa, let's think this through. You do know that that would probably be certain death. Yeah, but isn't he worthy of it? You can't argue that point, but it seems like a waste because I could do so much with this life. I have a lot of knowledge of truth to just spend it like that, but that's Christianity. God is willing to spend his most precious things to bring about redemption. Case in point, his son, Jesus. And if he is willing to lay down the life of his son, don't you think it's reasonable to follow through and say yes, and he'd be willing to lay down the life of his children? And that's what he makes very clear in Scripture. He doesn't waste it, but he's willing to give it to express his love to express his power, and to see lives changed. And so I start out as a premise point in my Christianity to say, this body, this blood is no longer mine. I let go of my hold and my grip. And instead of trying to justify, like, well, we could have used this a lot better. I mean, we could have spent this differently. That's exactly what Judas is doing. Judas was offended by Christ in this situation. That is a waste. Of course, we do know there's a little, you know, side note to this story. It says he he wanted the money to go into the purse, and the common person, guess who controlled that? He did. He was only interested in gain for himself, but he had a very creative cover for it. Oh, the poor, the poor, the poor. We have the same cover. Oh, sharing the gospel you know, more widely, and we, need, we want to take care of the lost and the dying. If I give up my life, who's going to reach them? You see, we have our same cover. The point is, I want to blow that cover off for myself and for all of us and say, he deserves it. What is spikenard? So I'm going to refer to it as the healing juice. In the Greek, it's nardos. Very attractive word. Spikenard, the head of a fragrant East Indian plant which yields an oily juice of delicious odor which the ancient used either pure or mixed in the preparation of a most precious ointment. It is a healing juice used for an extraordinary number of ailments. It is a skin tonic that helps to cure fungal and bacterial skin infections. It provides relief from various types of inflammation. It helps cure constipation. It provides relief from insomnia, stress, and anxiety. It's a perfume and is also an effective deodorant. In addition to that, it treats allergies, fevers, hemorrhoids, angina pain, and varicose veins. This healing juice aids in cell regeneration, the healing of wounds, the circulation of blood and lymph, and the secretion of hormones and enzymes. It's the cure-all substance. Some of you are like, where has this stuff been my entire life? Some of you are even on your phone right now looking it up on Google. <laughs> if you have this, 
you have some confidence in a time of need, don't you? Health issues, financial issues, just trade in a little of your spike nard. This is valuable stuff. This is a solve-all for so many areas of your life. Who has this stuff? Mary of Bethany. And she has a good amount of it. And guess what? I could see the thinking. She keeps it in her pantry, and when she thinks about some of the economic instability of uh, her times, she might look in her pantry and go, okay, at least I have that. So when she sees Jesus, what does she do when she looks in her pantry? She looks at that, and she sees a replacement. She sees something that she has confidence in that isn't Christ. I could just ask the follow-up question, then what does she do? When she sees that, she has an action. She does something. When that replacement is brought to the surface, it moves her to do something, and that is to let go of the first so that she can receive the second. A quick lesson in the Greek, three words to help us understand faith, introducing Mary of Bethany and her treasure. So Mary had something quite special in her possession, a big jar of very expensive healing juice. This big jar of very expensive healing juice was the ideal thing to keep stowed away in her pantry. For if ever she fell upon hard times, she could always sell her extremely valuable healing juice in order to survive. So without even knowing it, she put her trust in this big jar of very expensive healing juice. Now I know at first you're thinking, how do we know she put her trust in that? And that's why I'm saying in the Greek, we know it, but I haven't gotten there yet. That's why I'm going to give you uh, some Greek words here. The first one is pistis. Commonly understood, simple translation is faith. So when you see the noun faith being used in the New Testament, it's almost always going to be this word, pistis. Mary had pistis in her big jar of very expensive healing juice. Mary was introduced to Jesus Christ. When she saw Jesus, she realized that he indeed was the proper object of her faith. So she believed in Jesus Christ. Greek word, pistuyo. So faith is a noun. It's just a statement of something, and that is the action. The action is the doing. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is the statement of the fact that you believe. That means if you did do the action of believe, you have faith. So this is what we are commissioned to do. It's an action. It's called pistuyo. You'll notice the word pistis is the root for it. It's this there. Okay, pistis, or I should say it flows out of this. Translation to believe, it's the action of faith. Mary, in seeing the ability of Jesus to save her, believed, she pistuyoed, for our terminology, in him, and trusted that he indeed was her salvation. Mary realized that to believe in Jesus, she needed to give up her trust in her big jar of very expensive healing juice and transfer all of her confidence to the master of her salvation. So she recognized this. She believes in Jesus, but to truly believe in Jesus, what did she need to do? She needed to give up something at the same time. So she needed to give up the thing that was holding the place, was in her grip, her grip of faith. She needed to let go of that first thing so that she could grip her faith in Jesus. Greek word number three. Now this is the, the word that is in the flow of this text multiple times in scripture. And that is pistikos nardos. Okay, nardos, as you have already been introduced, is spike nard. But this has an adjective description to it, and that's pistikos. You'll notice the word pistis, pistuyo, yeah? It means the object of one's faith, the spike nard. So when it says very costly, spike nard, it's the object of her faith that is her spike nard. That's what it would say in the Greek doesn't translate that way, so we just look at the value of it, and we fail to realize what is taking place in this story. The writers are saying she had something valuable to her. It was valuable because it placed, she put her confidence, and it was the pastikos in her life. It was the object of her faith. So what did she do with the object of her faith? Since it was replacing Jesus, she smashed it. She broke it out on him as an offering. She, get this, repented and believed. Oh, the expensive liquid in which one trusts. Now that's important here because when I say liquid, when I say healing juice, at first you don't see where I'm going with it maybe. But did you know that there is a liquid in which we put our trust? And you could even call it a healing juice. It's a weird term for it, but it's a healing juice. In other words, there's one healing juice over here, spike nard, very impressive. And very expensive, at least back in that day. And it's... You know, it can solve all sorts of ailments. You can put your confidence in it and still die and go to hell. But, boy, in your lifetime, you could have had, you know, no deodorant issues. 
In other words, you could have had all sorts of uh, helps from this spike dart, but it cannot help you at the deeper level of soul. You are still enslaved in a kingdom. The healing juice of Jesus sets you free and doesn't just help you with your body odor. It transforms every dimension of your life forever and always. And you're holding on to your spike guard when you could hold on to him? Mary broke open her big jar of very expensive healing juice on the head of, and feet of Jesus. She gave up her sole allegiance to her previous Pristikos Nardos and transferred her loyalties to a new healing juice. A new Pristikos Nardos. Capital. This is the real version. This is what we're supposed to put our confidence in. The healing juice of heaven. We'll call it the blood of Jesus. It is that fragrant juice that comes out of the one who gave his life for us. Did you know that's where we place our confidence? His sacrifice, his given us, his life for us. That's where we place our faith. We give up the healing juice called Nardos in order to have the healing juice called the precious shed blood of Jesus Christ. And he, Jesus, took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now this is worth laying down your life for. This is worth everything. Give up, repent, take hold of this living water. What is the precious blood of Christ for? This is a very quick overview of what it says in scripture very specifically about the blood. It's for atonement for sin, a propitiation. It's for our justification from sin, for the forgiveness of sins. Now contrast this in your mind to what Nardos was good for. Now when you're reading through that Nardos list, you're like very impressed. However, just let it pale. Let the things of this earth grow strangely dim in light of this list. For the forgiveness of sins, for the remission of sins, for the cleansing and washing from all sin, for the purging of our consciences, for peace, for reconciliation unto Christ, for righteousness, for the purpose of saving us from the wrath that will come, for the destruction of the devil, for overcoming the devil, for redemption, eternal redemption, for the purchase of our very beings, for the purpose of giving us life within eternal life, for the bringing back to life, for sanctification, for spiritual and physical healing, for boldness to enter into the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God, for the purpose of enabling us to make our daily, hourly, minute by minute home in Christ Jesus. What a list. Jesus points to Mary's action. What did this woman do? She showed us how faith works. It's not pouring out earthly spikenard that saves. You know that it's not repentance that saves? You know, you could, Mary could dump out her earthly spikenard. That's actually not what saves. It's why you are doing it. It's your end game. The reason you pour out your polluted water isn't so that you could just have an empty cup. That doesn't save you. That doesn't mean you have living water. You pour it out so that you can receive the living water. It's the living water that saves. It's his work on the cross that saves. It's not your work. You simply must let go. You must give up so that you can take hold of what he has done, who he is. It's believing that Christ is our rightful Pastikos Nardos that truly supplies us salvation. And when we see Jesus as our lone source of salvation, like Mary, we will gladly grab our jar of earthly spikenard and, as an evidence of our faith, repent of putting our confidence therein and pour it out upon him as an offering of worship. The first Adam's failure. So you'll see me a lot of times talk about twos. So I'm going to put Adam over here first. And then you have the second man, Jesus. When we are born, we are born into a genealogical line. And we are born in what's called in Adam. We are in the first man who is under a just condemnation. Adam is headed the wrong way and fast. And so as a result, we share in Adam's condemnation. You're like, I didn't do anything. However, you were in Adam when he did that dastardly deed. And as a result, in the way that hereditary uh, lineage works, you share in Adam's work. When he went hunk into the fruit, you, in a sense, share in his work. As unfair as you may deem that, it's the facts. You are under condemnation unless, unless you repent, step out of Adam, and into Christ. You know how unfair it seems that you share in Adam's work? It's equally unfair that you get to share in Jesus' work. So however you want to look at it, Jesus did work for you. You didn't do it. He did it. 
And if you are willing to give up your role in Adam, which I don't know why you'd want to hang on to it, but if you're willing to shed this first man, give up that life and enter into the second man, the work of Christ, you get to share in his work. And when he went to that cross, he takes you with him and he nullifies the power of sin over your life and he crushes the head of your opponent. He destroys the flesh that has controlled you. He defeats the power of the devil in your life. When he goes into the ground and is buried, he buries your old life with him. And then when he rises to newness of life, he did the work, not you. When he rises, you rise unto newness of life in Christ Jesus. You are no longer in Adam. You are now in Christ. How'd you get there? By faith. How does faith work? By giving up, by putting off the old man and putting on and clothing yourself by faith in the new man. You don't do the work. He did the work. You simply put your confidence in him, but to have that confidence placed here, you must let go of the first. Don't try and bring Adam into your Christianity. The great mistake of modern Christianity is it tries to blend the two and it leads to impotence, powerlessness. But if we would let go, there's something so much better to hold on to. We are in Adam's failure. We are born clinging to our very expensive big jar of earthly healing juice. Isn't it funny? Mine, my precious. We're holding on to this and the gospel comes to us. What does it say? Um, Yeah, that. This is my life. No, that's your death. See, you hold on to this, you die because of it. It is only logical to let it go. You ever been, you're training your kids and you're like, you know, when you do that, it actually just messes up your life. It leads to disaster, it leads to discipline, it leads to misery, it leads to all sorts of nonsense, right? So as a parent, it just seems so logical to me that you'd stop doing it. You ever had, that's my logic as a parent all the time. My kids don't always get it quickly. I think in a little kid's mind, they're like, no, no, I like this disobedience. This is really fun. But you're not thinking through the consequences of it. You don't recognize what follows that, what the results are. Jesus is saying the same thing to us. It's like, hey, that leads to death. But it's so fragrant. It can do all sorts of things. It can solve all these problems in my life. Actually, it's harming you. As long as you allow that to replace me, it's leading to your death. But if you would let it go, you will find a life that is abundant. The triumphant return of faith, understanding fact, faith, and experience. Three characters. I know, if you've heard this 100 times before, it never hurts to hear it 101. Three characters. And they're all commissioned to do the impossible, and that's to walk the ridgepole of a barn. I know it doesn't sound impossible, but this one is, okay? And the first character, his name is Fact. The second character's name is Faith. And the third character's name is Experience. Fact gets up there, and he pulls off the impossible. How did he do that? Now, we don't use the term fact in Christianity a lot, okay? That which is without error, that which is true, no matter what you do to it, is just is incontrovertible. Fact. We use the term truth because truth is a person. It's not data. And so, but fact and truth are the same. It's unchanging. It's without lie. It is without flaw. And so the fact gets up there, Jesus Christ, and he lives the impossible. He does what no man could ever do. He does it. Now, faith is where we come in. You see, faith, if faith tries to walk that ridgepole on its own, it has no possibility. But when faith fixes its gaze on the fact, on the truth, it actually gains balance and is able to do something it never could before. And life would be sweet and good and wonderful if those were the only two characters. But there is some noise behind us called experience. Emotion. There's various other terms we could give it. At the devil hangs back out. and is always like, hey, you know, what about great Aunt Martha? Remember, she was a Christian. She fell off the roof. You know, you have all sorts of noise back here. How about all the baggage you come uh, with in your Christian life? It's like, yeah, I tried that. Yeah, I tried praying once. I mean, I mean, how many times have I heard that? Oh, I tried praying. Okay, did you continue to pray? I mean, that's the whole point of prayer is you pray and you pray until it happens. If you tried it, that, it sounds like digging for buried treasure and taking one scoopful and go, yeah, I tried digging for buried treasure, never found it. Yeah, you had one scoopful, bucko. In other words, the whole point is if God says there's a treasure there, you go after it until you kink, kink, hit it. If God said it, it's good. He can't lie. That's what God has given us. He's given us fact. He's given us promise. He's given us truth. When faith fixes itself to it, it doesn't matter how much noise is back here. 
You ignore it, and you keep walking forward. It doesn't matter how much allurement is over here in the world. Spike Nard calling out saying, but I can save you. I have a savior, and his name is Jesus Christ. We turn our back on that which previously satisfied us, and we find a deeper satisfaction in that which only can satisfy us. It's a person. His name is Jesus Christ. The promiser. So our God has actually given us promise. He's given us fact. He's given us the map to buried treasure. He has said, if you dig here, you will find. Do you trust him? If you trust him, what would you do? Well, you, you know, if it's Treasure Island, you would leave your little village behind. You would get on the high seas. Even if there's pirates and there's talking birds, you would go across the high seas. And even though there's, what are some of those diseases? Scurvy. Even if there's scurvy and all sorts of things, you would, and what would you follow? You would follow that map. Whatever it says, you don't, no matter, you don't care how much difficulty it comes with, that's where you're going to find the treasure. We are on a treasure hunt. The X that marks the spot or the cross that marks the spot on our treasure map is the person of Jesus Christ. You want the fullness of Jesus? Stand up and start walking. Don't just stare at the desert. Well, I have a map. The map doesn't equate to it. You must believe it. You must give up your old life and start on the journey. Unless you do that, you will never find the substance of what this is talking about. The jingle of, what are those, uh, doubloons uh, that are, you know, that's probably misleading. Sort of like the uh, McDonald's illustration. Maybe I shouldn't go into money on this. What we find in the kingdom of heaven is far better than pirate doubloons. It is the person of Jesus Christ, the glory of Jesus Christ. So what has he said? What do we know about him? Think about this. He cannot lie. He will not change. That means what he says to us is true and it will never alter. He is the same forever, and he is eager to answer. He wants you to discover the fullness. You must choose to let go and grab a hold. You must be willing to allow the Spirit of God to point out anything in your life that is displacing and replacing him. Anything you're putting your confidence in that is supposed to be you putting confidence in Jesus Christ. When you see Jesus Give that up and hold on to him. The spiritual growl, don't live your Christian life without it. To live this, you must be ready for action. Most of us in Christianity, we, preserve, we prefer passivity. It's like, yeah, I just agree with the truth. Yes, that's my doctrine. If it is your doctrine, live it. Tie your hammock strings into it. Put your weight on it. Sit down on that chair. Give up that spike nard. Do it. Repent. Believe. So if you want to borrow this, you can. But this is like the statement of my soul. This is how I have said it for years. And I have so many different moments. If you've been around Ellerslie for years, you've heard some of these different moments where all seems lost. All goes black. You know those moments where it's just like everything in the spiritual realm is defined, everything that you stand for and believe. It's weird. It's like God is sitting on the throne, but everything down here seems to be the opposite. Wow. And you're shaking, quaking in your spiritual boots. So this is the quote. And I, I can think of all these different moments throughout my life where it's like in that moment, all goes dark, out comes the statement. Turn my back on this. I don't care what the natural realm says. What does God say? Watch what my God will do. Imagine staring at the cross. Your Messiah is as good as dead. Roman soldiers piercing his side. Storm coming, earth shaking, all seems lost. Stare up at that cross. All of us right now, stare up at that cross. I know it looks bad, but watch what our God's going to do. You see, what looks like failure is actually victory. You need to remember that when all goes dark. Faith knows where to turn. The gaze of the soul never goes off of God. It stays fixed on God and his truth, and it never starts staring at bleakness. It never goes in the direction of despair. Despair is the opposite turn of the soul. Confidence, rousing confidence that my God is still seated on his throne. And though it appears that all is lost, my God is in control. And he will turn all that the enemy seeks for evil in my life and in the lives of those around me. And he will turn it to good. And no weapon fashioned against the saints of God will in fact prosper. And greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. That's faith calling out. Where are we getting that from? Are we making this up in our head? This is his word. This is his promise. We stake our, our eternity on that. And we will not be put to shame. 
That's another promise. You put your confidence in Jesus, he will sustain you. He will add all other things unto you. Your job is to let go. Grab a hold with that grip of faith on the living God. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.